Hello. My name is Caleb Ward, and I'm a senior here at Calvin studying public health and pre-medicine. And it is my distinct privilege today to welcome you to the January Series 2017. I would also like to extend a very special welcome to guests at four of our 50 remote webcast sites. Denver, Colorado, Bradenton, Florida, Burnaby, British Columbia, and East Lansing, Michigan. And now, if you will please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you for the January series and for the chance to learn. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of your plan. Guide Dr. Dick as he speaks today and guide us as we listen. Propel us into action, God, and help us reflect what has been done for us as we serve our calling. For without you, we can do nothing, and for you, we do everything. In your name, amen. And now, Tarita Johnson, director of Calvin's Career Center, will introduce our speaker. Brian Dick is a Calvin graduate, associate professor of psychology at Colorado State University, and co-founder and chief science officer of Jobsology. His PhD is from the University of Minnesota. Brian has published extensively on topics related to meaningful work and perceptions of work as a calling. He is co-author of Make Your Job a Calling, How the Psychology of Vocation Can Change Your Life at Work, and co-editor of two other books. Brian serves on the editorial boards of six research journals, including Journal of Counseling Psychology, Journal of Vocational Behavior, and Journal of Career Assessment. He is the recipient of the 2010 Early Career Professional Award from the Society for Vocational Psychology. Brian lives with his lovely wife, Amy, and their four sons in Fort Collins, Colorado. Amongst his numerous accomplishments, Brian is even proud because he does all of the laundry at home. <laughs> Brian will be available to greet the audience in the West Lobby following the presentation. Calvin College is grateful to Bruce and Mary Okama and the Calvin Center for Innovation and Business for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Brian Dick. Thank you, Tarita, for that introduction. And um, if I may, I wanted to also say a quick word of thanks to Christy Potter, Professors Julie Yonker and Brian Colley, to members of the Career Center staff and the Christian Reformed Church Ministry Assessment Team, to President Leroy and Jay Wise for your hospitality, to Bruce and Mary Okuma and the Calvin Center for Innovation and Business. And finally, I wanted to say a word of thanks to all of you who are here in the room or who are watching remotely or listening online. I'm aware that there are other events that are happening right now <laughs> in this time zone that you can make a case are of greater historical importance. Uh, so I don't take for granted that you've chosen to spend the hour with me. It is, of course, a tremendous honor for me uh, to be part of yet another amazing slate of presenters with the January series. The honor has special significance for me because of my deep and profound sense of gratitude and admiration for Calvin College. I say that, of course, as an alumnus, but also as a fourth-generation Calvin student. The picture you see here is of my great-grandfather, the Reverend Dr. Uh, Jacob Breinug, who's all dressed up, settling in for an afternoon of studying in his dorm room on the Franklin Street campus. <laughs> 
He graduated from the college in 1919 and the seminary a few years later. Uh, was one of the first editors of the Chimes and uh, during the 1950s served on the board of trustees for the college. Now his daughter, my grandmother, Celia Brynub Dick, in 1951 collaborated on the Calvin Alma Mater song. Dale Grotenheis wrote the music, she wrote the words. She was a poet and then later with my grandfather served as a missionary and a teacher. She was probably the most humble person I've ever known, but whenever the Calvin Alma Mater song was sung, I could sense her heart swelling with pride, and I still feel that way. Now, her son, my father, Jack, graduated from the college in 1976 and the seminary later twice. No photos, sorry, Dad. Um, and I graduated in 1998. My sister's a few years later. I met my wife, Amy, here. She graduated in 2000. We have four boys. Undoubtedly, they feel predestined uh, to <laughs> attend Calvin. But this is an institution that has meant a great deal to me and to my family for generations, and so it's really wonderful to be back here among friends. I thought I'd start with, um, just as context, a little history about my own vocational journey. It's no small irony that I'm a vocational psychologist now because when I was a student at Calvin, I really struggled uh, with the process of discerning what I thought my calling would be for my career. It wasn't that I couldn't find anything I was interested in, it was that I was interested in lots of things. And the thought of choosing one, if that meant not choosing something else that was really appealing to me, was almost paralyzing. I was a student in the honors program, uh, so expertly run all those years by Ken Bratt. And one semester I decided that for my honors credit, I would take a lifespan development course. That course was taught by Professor Wayne Josie, and he knew enough about me at that point to realize that I was having kind of a crisis of vocational identity. And so he said, Brian, how about for your honors project, you spend a little bit of time um, engaging in self-analysis and writing about your strengths and weaknesses, how you're unique, how you might live a calling in these various options that you're considering right now. I still remember him expressing some concern that my list of weaknesses was longer than my list of strengths. Um, but as part of this process, he recommended two books, and he suggested I incorporate these into the project. The first book, I have absolutely no memory of whatsoever. But the second book was this one, The Fabric of This World, by a Calvin philosophy professor, Lee Hardy. And the subtitle here is Inquiries into Calling, Career Choice, and the Design of Human Work. And this book ended up having a, a pretty formative impact on the way I started thinking through these issues. And I'll come back to it in a moment. This was an outstanding project, and I learned a lot, but I didn't quite, at the end of it, have the sense of clarity that I was hoping for. So the next semester, I decided I'd give career counseling a try. So I went to the Career Center, and I had a, an appointment with the late, great Bob Reed. And I'll never forget this. It was kind of a strange session, and he started asking me to talk a little bit about what kinds of things I enjoyed. I said, you know, I, I like to write, I, I want to work in a role where I'm helpful to people, and I don't really mind school. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, well, what do you think about what I do? 
Now, it's funny, I, one of my roles at Colorado State University is providing some training to our PhD students in counseling psychology around career counseling. And Bob's approach here is not one that we would typically recommend. Um, but it didn't come out of the blue either. Bob knew me. I had been active in residence life. He provided some training in that context, so we had a relationship. And he knew I had been considering and exploring some possibilities. So he asked me that question, and I said, you know, I've been considering it. And then he asked, are you a good student? I said, oh, I'm doing okay. He said, well, why don't you go into graduate school for counseling psychology? And literally, I left. I walked straight to my dorm room. I called my parents, and I said, hey, I think I know what I'm going to do next. The session lasted about 10 minutes. It was a little strange. Um, so I ended up um, at the University of Minnesota. And I have to say, part of the um, part of the appeal of counseling psychology was that it was the broadest area of psychology. People with that degree could do research, they could teach, they could go into private practice, they could consult for organizations. So I knew that by pursuing this path, I would be effectively delaying the decision about what I actually had to do with my life. But the program at Minnesota, um, counseling psych program, it was known for its contributions to career development theory, and research. Of course, I had no idea about that when I started. Um, but partway in, I was working as a, a counselor in, in the vocational assessment clinic that we had there, providing assessment and counseling to a lot of middle career adults, many of whom were objectively very successful, but subjectively totally miserable. I mean, some of them could hardly get out of bed in the morning. They hated their job so much. And a few of them would say things like, you know, I wish I had discovered my calling. And that was just so interesting to me because I was still very much grappling with these kinds of issues about discerning a calling myself. And, you know, it occurred to me that maybe this is something that I, I should uh, explore a little bit further. So I went back to this book, The Fabric of This World. And I read it with a fresh perspective and I thought, you know, a lot of these claims that are in this book are probably testable using psychological science, which is stuff that I was learning about. And so I did a lit search to figure out what psychologists had said about this whole topic. And I found a few studies, not many. Um, a lot of them weren't very good in quality. And some of them took what struck me as a very humanistic approach to this topic. I mean, these papers would say things like, although at one time the term calling had religious connotations, today it means a, a drive, personal drive towards self-fulfillment, things like this. And I thought, you know, that's not really how I think about this. Somebody should probably do some research related to this that takes more of a Christian perspective. And then I thought, maybe I should consider doing this as an option. And then I thought, if I don't do it, who would end up doing it? And as it turns out, lots of people would start to do it. Uh, but nevertheless, that gives you a sense of how I ultimately ended up deciding that maybe part of my calling would be trying to figure out, using psychological science, what it means to um, discern and live out a calling. And that's where we're going to start today. I'm going to share with you some highlights from the last 10 years or so of psychological research related to this topic. But where I really want to focus is on practical application. How should I discern my calling, and what should I do to live out my calling? 
Now, this concept of calling is, um, it's an old idea. It's got a very long history, but it has had something of a resurgence within the popular culture in recent years. For example, Monster.com, one of the Internet's largest online job boards, had as its tagline for a time, your calling is calling. You have to take your eyes off of Alicia Keys and move to the upper left to see that in the logo. <laughs> this is an interesting way to put it. Of course, Oprah uh, has devoted issues of her magazine to this topic. And anytime she gives a commencement address, usually at one of the Ivy League schools, she implores graduates to live their true calling. Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology, in his best-selling book, Authentic Happiness, devotes a chapter to the topic. So does the Dalai Lama in his book, The Art of Happiness at Work. And really, if you go through any large bookstore and take a peek at the career section, you'll see books with titles like The Brent Flex, Live Your Calling, or Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak, or Oz Guinness's The Call. Of course, if you're looking for a reading material, I usually recommend starting with this one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you read sources like this, you very quickly start to appreciate why Amy Rezneski, a management professor at Yale, has likened the concept of calling to a Rorschach. Now, a Rorschach is the famous inkblot test, where a psychotherapist would give a set of cards with ambiguous stimuli like this to a client or a patient, and instruct that person to say whatever it is they see. This is called a projective test. And their response is thought to convey meaningful information about the inner workings of their psyche. I actually used to have one of these on my office door, um, but our administration made me take it down. They, they said there's too much sex and violence in it. <laughs> so. <laughs> what Rezneski meant was that similar to a projective test like a Rorschach, if you ask people to define what a calling is, their response is likely to reveal some things about their worldview commitments. And that's probably true. Now, this whole question of what a calling means is a matter of some debate, which I'm not going to wade into right now. I'll just share with you how I've approached the concept and the work that I've been able to do with my colleagues and my students. We define a calling as it applies to the work role, and I think it's broader than that, but as it applies to the work role, we define a calling as having three dimensions. Number one, a transcendent summons. This idea that the word calling implies a caller. Now, for Christians, we identify the caller as God. Other people might consider a family legacy or a social need or something like that. The second dimension is an alignment of work purpose with life purpose. It's the idea that uh, what we do all day for our work is not something that's segmented or compartmentalized, sealed off from what we see as being of ultimate importance. Rather, there's an alignment. And then the third dimension is this pro-social orientation. It's the idea that we approach work this way, not first and foremost for our own personal happiness, but rather out of a sense of contribution that we want to make to the world around us. The paradox being that when we're focused on contributing to others' well-being, we ourselves tend to experience a lot of joy. Now, in psychology, if you want to study a, a, a topic that hasn't been studied very much before, you have to start with a clear definition. The next step is to devise a way to measure this characteristic in people. So in my lab, we set out to construct an instrument called the Calling and Vocation Questionnaire. 
And I will spare you the, the gritty particulars about scale development research, but there's a long series of progressive reduction of the number of items based on statistical analyses. And although I won't get into that, I did want to show you what the measurement model looks like, because isn't it beautiful? I mean, there's just a very nice symmetry to it. It's possible it's just me. Um, but anyway, just to give you a feel for what is included in this scale, consider how these three sample items, there are now 24 in total, but consider how these three apply to your own life and experience. I was drawn by something beyond myself to pursue my current line of work. My work helps me live out my life's purpose, and making a difference for others is the primary motivation in my career. Now, if you read these statements and you feel like, yeah, that pretty much captures the way I think about my work and my experience, then you'd probably score high on our calling and vocation questionnaire. If you read these items and you think, no, nah, this doesn't really fit for me, then you'd score lower. Well, once you have a scale that you can use to quantify a characteristic like a sense of calling in people, then you can administer it to groups of people as part of a survey along with other scales that measure other things, and then you can see how all those scores are related. So we've done that, and um, over the course of many studies, and around the time I started kind of diving into this area, there were maybe eight empirical studies in the social sciences. Now we're, we're very quickly approaching 200. And what we've learned is that people with a calling are more confident and comfortable with their career choices than are people who think of their work in other ways. They're happier at work. They're more committed both to their careers and to their organizations. And they put in more effort than do other people at work. And not only is a sense of calling associated with these kinds of career development benefits, but people who think of their work as a calling also think life as a whole is more meaningful, and they're happier with life in general than are people who think of their work in other ways. And I should just pause here and say that as this all started, a lot of these studies were happening in the United States, but within the last five years in particular, this has become something of a global phenomenon, and in fact, there are now um, studies published by researchers from more than 20 countries who have investigated this concept within their context. And although there are some subtle cross-cultural differences, the similarities up to this point have been more striking than the differences. Even across diverse cultural contexts, a sense of calling seems to be linked to a lot of benefits. Now, within the last few years, some interesting new questions have emerged, like, for example, is it enough to, to have a sense of calling, or is the key really living out that calling? So a colleague of mine, who I, was a good friend, who I collaborate a great deal with, Ryan Duffy, at the University of Florida, devised a scale that measures living a calling, and we administered it as part of a survey along with our calling and vocation questionnaire. And we wanted to see how these things were related, and we found that perceiving a calling and living a calling were correlated 0.46. Now, if you're a little bit rusty on your statistics, um, a correlation coefficient is a value that ranges from negative one to positive one. And the closer that number gets to either negative one or positive one, the stronger the association between those two variables. And in the social sciences, even though we get made fun of for it, we tend to get excited every time we see a correlation of about 0.3 or higher. Our heart rate starts to increase, we feel like there's something meaningful going on. 
And so a relationship of 0.46 between perceiving a calling and living a calling, that's larger than 0.3, but it's not anywhere close to 1.0. So clearly, perceiving and living a calling are related, but they're not redundant. They are different things. It is possible for a person to feel like, I have a sense of calling, but for whatever reason, I am not currently in a position where I'm living it out. And in fact, when we've looked at these variables together, as predictors of well-being, we've learned that a sense of calling, having a calling, is related positively to well-being, but when we statistically control for living a calling, that relationship goes away. Now, what that means is that one of the reasons that people who perceive a calling experience a lot of well-being is that many of them are able to find opportunities to actively express their calling, to live it out. And it's that living out that really seems tied to well-being, which of course prompts the question, okay, so how do I discern my calling and live it out? Now, a lot of Christians um, approach this question with this kind of response. To discern my calling, I should pray and wait for God's direction. You look at biblical examples like Moses and the burning bush and, um, I mean, take my word for it, if you're grappling with this whole question, it seems like it would be pretty good to have an audible voice tell you unambiguously what the answer is. And in fact, I took this approach when I was an undergraduate. I, I remember pleading with God to reveal to me what his will was for my career. And I don't think I was expecting an audible voice, but I did kind of expect to have some aha moment or wake up one day with just an unambiguous sense of clarity. And that never really happened for me, at least not in the way uh, that I expected. And if you read theologians on this, they will point out, even in the pages of scripture, uh, God does occasionally communicate his callings in a direct way like this. But that's the exception, not the rule. That's not something most of us should expect or hope for. Usually, God in his wisdom communicates his callings in indirect ways. Now, if you're a vocational psychologist, you might think to yourself, well, um, you know, one indirect way might be um, doing things like you might experience in career counseling um, that result in learning some answers to that question. And so I went to the, the research literature and I found a, a meta-analysis. That's a study of studies carried out by Steve Brown and colleagues at Loyola University Chicago. They scoured the research literature to identify every study they could that experimentally tested a career intervention. And when I say career intervention, I don't mean like the show intervention, I mean a career counseling, uh, individual career counseling, group career counseling, a classroom-based career development intervention, online career assessment systems, things like this. And Brown and colleagues were interested in Two questions, number one, do these things actually help? I mean, do people who have career development concerns who participate in these, are they better off than people who have similar concerns who don't? And if they do help, and some are more helpful than others, what differentiates the really effective interventions from the ones that are less effective? And what they found was, the answer to that first question was a resounding yes, career interventions help, uh, they help a great deal. Um, they're at least as effective as other types of psychological and educational interventions. People with career development concerns, concerns who experience these things 
experienced a lot of benefits. They also found that, of course, some were more important or more effective than others, and the ones that were particularly effective tended to include some combination of these five critical ingredients. So pay attention to what these five things are. I'll kind of walk through them here. The first one was written exercises, and especially written goal-setting exercises. In psychology, we've learned that goals are very important at helping us organize behavior, motivate our behavior. When you commit those goals to writing, it creates a kind of psychological contract of a person with herself or himself. So written goal-setting exercises seem to be really helpful. Second thing is individualized interpretation and feedback. This is the, uh, precisely the kind of information that you'd receive if you went to a career counselor and took some career assessments. The third thing, the third critical ingredient in effective career interventions is accurate and up-to-date occupational information. And there are a variety of sources of this information, some of them online, that the U.S. Department of Labor, for example, uh, provides. Uh, but you can also get this kind of information from conducting an informational interview with someone who's working in a field that you're interested in. The fourth thing is building support from important others. These kinds of decisions with long-term implications, like, you know, what is my calling for my career, they're best made not in a vacuum, but within a community, uh, with the support of friends, of family, of trusted mentors. And then finally, modeling of successful career decision-making behaviors. And by modeling here, I don't mean supermodeling, I mean role modeling. People are wired such that when we identify with someone who's successfully carrying out a behavior that we want to engage in, it emboldens us. It makes us feel confident that we too can do that. So these five critical ingredients. Now, when I, um, when I hear people talk about this strategy to discern my calling, I sh should pray and wait for God's direction. I say, look, this is absolutely the kind of issue that a person of faith should engage in prayer about. Uh, and patience is a virtue, but if the waiting here is a kind of passive waiting, it's just not as effective as praying and being active. So I say, look, don't pray and wait passively, rather pray and be active. Now another, um, I would say, kind of misconception that I often hear uh, from Christians is, if I'm serious about my faith, I should consider ministry and missions before anything else. Now look, my dad's a pastor, my grandparents were missionaries, uh, we absolutely need more of both. But there are a couple of problems with this way of thinking. Um, one of them is the implication embedded in, in here that people who are not pastors or missionaries maybe aren't as serious about their faith. And that's problematic. But the, the other problem is that what this fails to consider is the critical role that our gifts play in this whole process. Now, the New Testament talks about gifts. Uh, there are a few different passages that um, approach the topic kind of like this. Um, and here, Paul is talking to the church in, in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. There are other passages like this. There are also um, ones that use the metaphor of the body. We're all parts of one body. One can't say to the other, you're not important. All of them are important. They have to work together collaboratively to advance the well-being of the whole. And so people are different, 
And those differences matter in ways that have implications for where we're best equipped to serve. Now, um, Paul is clearly talking to the church here, but if you wanted to take that basic principle and generalize it from the church to society as a whole, you'd be in good company. Um, Martin Luther laid the groundwork for this, and John Calvin affirmed Luther's position and extended it, and then the Puritans took the ball and ran with it. And if you thought what my great-grandfather was wearing looked uncomfortable, (laughs) check out these guys. Um, This is um, William Perkins and Richard Baxter, and I mean, let's be clear, the Puritans left a pretty complicated legacy for us, but if you want to read some very rich writing on the role of work in human life, you'll find that in the Puritans. For example, this is from William Perkins, right after his death, beginning of the 17th century, he Um, is commenting on that same passage that we just looked at. And he says here, Paul shows the diversity of gifts that God bestows on his church and so proportionally in every society. And that's the generalization from the church to society. And by reason of this distinction of people, partly in respect to gifts, partly in respect of order, come personal callings. He writes, personal callings arise from that distinction which God makes between person and person in every society. Now, we could take that basic um, set of principles and look 300 years later at Frank Parsons. Now, Frank Parsons is a very obscure figure in history, but if you've studied career development, you'd identify him as um, the person widely recognized as the father of vocational guidance because he laid out this deceptively simple three-step model more than 100 years ago, that still forms the basis of how career counselors approach their task today. He said, in the wise choice of a vocation, there are three broad factors. Number one, a clear understanding of yourself and all of these different ways of looking at yourself. Number two, a knowledge of the world of work and all of these different characteristics of the world of work. So understand yourself understand the world of work. And then number three, where the rubber really hits the road, true reasoning on the relation of these two groups of facts. Understand how you're unique, understand opportunities that are available to you, and then find a match. Now, as it happens, research psychologists have put this basic idea to the test. And over the decades, literally hundreds of studies have investigated this idea of person-environment fit. Person-environment fit. And Amy Christoph Brown and colleagues at the University of Iowa a while back conducted a different meta-analysis where they looked at every study they could that has uh, tested the uh, relationship between the degree of fit between a person and the environment and some kind of meaningful outcome. And I'll try to decode this for you because this works on multiple levels. PJ fit, that's person job fit. The degree of fit between a person and her or his job is associated with job satisfaction across many dozens of studies. And remember, 0.56, that's higher than 0.3. By social science standards, that's a pretty strong relationship. It works on the organizational level. Person-organization fit is related to organizational commitment. Works on the team level. Person-team fit is related to how satisfied a person is with people on the team. And even on the dyad level, the degree of fit between a person and her or his supervisor is closely associated with how satisfied that person is with the supervisor. All of that is to say, fit really does matter. 
And it's because of research evidence like this that um, a colleague of mine, Kurt Krager, who's an in industrial organizational psychologist, and I uh, worked with our university to connect with a couple of entrepreneurs and form a company called Jobsology, where we uh, take a set of assessments that measure gifts, and I use that word very broadly. In this case, we're looking at work-related values, interests, personality, and workplace culture preferences. We pull them all together in an online career assessment system, and then we use algorithms to suggest for people who take these assessments occupations that are predicted to fit them well on the basis of their psychological profile. Um, once a person has that information, they can get detailed information about all these different career paths. They can even search for open jobs available in their zip code. Now, I am absolutely thrilled that Calvin College is using Jobsology. There are high school students in the south side of Chicago who are using Jobsology. There are organizations using it, like Otterbox and New Belgium Brewing Company and Amazon. And most recently, a group of retirees, as, as part of a pilot program that we ran in cooperation with the AARP last year. So when people say, I, if I'm serious about my faith, I should consider ministry and missions before anything else, I say, listen, start by understanding your gifts. Maybe you are a great fit for ministry and missions. But the question is, how are you unique and what needs are you best equipped to address on the basis of how you've been created? Now, a third thing I sometimes hear is I might make the wrong choice and miss my calling. You know, the fear of getting it wrong. This is related to the concept of the soulmate in romantic relationships. It's the idea that there's one person out there in the universe for me, probably another student at Calvin, And if I don't find that person, I'm doomed to a life of misery and loneliness. Same thing happens as people think about their callings. And this plays out in a couple of different ways. One of them is illustrated by this obituary that was published in the satirical newspaper, The Onion. 97-year-old dies unaware of being violin prodigy. Um, I'll just read the first sentence here. Retired post office branch manager Nancy Hollander, 97, died at her home of natural causes after spending her life completely unaware that she was one of the most talented musicians of the past century and possessed the untapped ability to become a world-class violin virtuoso. Now, is this how it works? I mean, is it possible that there is some latent skill embedded deep within us that we're totally unaware of? that we're in danger of going to our grave without ever realizing? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think if you live an active life, and especially if you, um, you know, have a liberal arts education, uh, whether it's at an institution or elsewhere, where you sample broadly a wide domain of areas of human endeavor, you probably will get a sense of the things that you really enjoy and that you're really good at, and you'll gravitate toward those things. I don't think there are too many Nancy Hollanders uh, walking around. Well, I mean, she's, you know, not walking around anymore, but you, you get the idea. That's fake news, ladies and gentlemen. That's fake news. Now, the other way that this plays out is, is the fear of getting it wrong, of making the wrong choice. 
you know, and, and this one, that, it's an interesting fear because if you talk to people who have had long careers, they will tell you that their sense of calling has evolved over time. And if you look at the U.S. Department of, uh, or sorry, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, you'll learn that between the ages of 18 and 44, the average American has held 11 jobs. Now, is it the case that the average American got it wrong the first 10 times? Um, I don't think so. If you talk with people about this, you'll learn that what is a good fit at one point in time leads to other opportunities that then become a good fit at that point in time. And where things go awry, it, it prompts people to look at other opportunities that might be a good fit at that point in time. When we were working on this calling and vocation questionnaire, we wanted to design two subscales, one that measured the extent to which people are seeking a calling, and the other that measured the extent to which people feel they have a calling. What we assumed was that scores on these two subscales would be negatively correlated, uh, meaning that people who are seeking a calling are motivated to seek a calling because they don't have one. And then once they gain a sense of calling, they feel like they have a sense of calling, they're no longer looking then because now they've discovered it. Imagine our surprise and dismay then when we saw scores on these two scales to correlate 0.77. That is not a negative correlation. Uh, that's a positive correlation, and it's so strong, so close to 1.0, that it suggests seeking and having a calling are probably tapping into the same phenomena. So at first we were annoyed by this because, once again, people did not conform to our neat logic uh, but then we thought, I guess we should think about this like scientists, what are some other explanations? And I think what we um, eventually agreed on was that discerning a calling is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. By definition, having a calling means that a person is constantly asking questions about how can I do this better? Uh, are there other opportunities that would allow me to use my gifts more effectively in the world around me? How can I expand my little sphere of influence to have broader impact? It doesn't stop. You don't find a calling and then ride off happily into the sunset. That's just the starting point. And so when people say I might make the wrong choice and miss my calling, I typically say, well, look, there are probably many pathways you could follow and still be faithful to your calling. Honestly, I think Bob Reed understood that, and that's what emboldened him to just nudge me to pick one of the things I was thinking about, because I think he saw that all of them would probably fit the, the kinds of things I was interested in. Instead, focus less on finding a calling and more on building it. Focus less on finding it and more on building it. Which brings us to this question, how do people live their callings? focus less on finding it and more on building it. What does it look like to build a calling? Well, management scholars over the last 15 years have become very interested in this topic of job crafting. This is the idea that people are not passive recipients of their work environments. Rather, they can be active shapers of it. People have more latitude than they realize to craft the tasks that they're responsible for, uh, the relationships that they experience on the job, even the very meaning of the work itself. All of us have job descriptions that we have to adhere to, but within those job descriptions or around them, we have some latitude to approach things in a way that really fit who we are. 
And you can imagine that a lot of people with jobs that are fairly privileged, like university faculty member, for example, um, you know, have some freedom to engage in job crafting where other people might not. But I am really drawn to people who engage in this practice in some unexpected places, uh, which is why I always tell stories about the road construction flagger. All day, stands there turning a sign that says stop on one side and slow on the other, going back and forth on the two-way radio. But there's at least one road construction worker out there who loves what he does because he says, you know what, I get to keep people safe. And this job provides me an opportunity to do that every day. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. Or my friend Maggie Garza, a hospital janitor. She's got a job description that involves sweeping floors, wiping down surfaces, taking out garbage, things like that. And she does all those things, and she does them really well, but she sees her job as bigger than that. She builds relationships with people. Um, she prays for them as she goes from room to room. She also orients her activities so that they're minimally disruptive to the flow of doctors and nurses. She sees what she does as a calling because she links it to this broader mission that the hospital has of providing high-quality health care, and that's precisely what she's doing. Now, psychologists um, are pretty well-equipped to use psychological science to study how people create and experience meaning in life. For example, one influential model is Crystal Park's meaning model, and here's just one part of it. According to Park, everybody, whether they can articulate it clearly or not, has a global meaning system. That is a set of beliefs and goals and values that combine to form the lens through which they view the world. Sounds a little bit like a worldview, doesn't it? She says people have these global meaning systems. They also have a day-to-day -day experience of meaning. We look at our experience, we try to make sense of it. And as she applies this to the workplace, she says that if a person's daily experience of meaning aligns with their global meaning system, then people are likely to find their work meaningful and satisfying. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that that's the case. But psychological science, although it's well-equipped to study meaning in life, it cannot speak to the meaning of life. Okay, it can investigate meaning in life, but it's not equipped to investigate the meaning of life. For that, we have to turn to other ways of knowing. If you're a Christian, you turn to the inspired pages of Scripture, where you read that there's one God who created everything, who declared it good, and who charged humans with the task of managing that creation and cultivating it. You read that sin entered the world and that the effects of sin are cosmic in scope. They affect the whole of creation, uh, making it tainted, twisted, not the way it's supposed to be. In response to that, you read that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live among us, to teach us how to live, to die a brutal death on the cross, to be resurrected. And as it says in Colossians here, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself not just human relationships, but all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And through that act of redemption, the outcome is guaranteed. We know where we're headed. It ends with Christ's return and all things being made new. Now, what is our role in this grand narrative as humans? 
Well, we're charged with this task of managing and cultivating creation, but we also read in 1 Corinthians, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And I absolutely love how L. Walters puts that passage together with that first Colossians, or Colossians 1 passage. He says, if Christ is the reconciler of all things, and if we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation on his behalf, then we have a redemptive task wherever our vocation places us in this world. I mean, what that means is that we are charged with this task of asking ourselves, what does it mean for me to think redemptively, to work redemptively, partnering with Christ to move my little corner of creation in the direction of its created intent? What does that mean for me if I'm an engineer or if I'm a nurse or a teacher or a road construction flagger or a hospital janitor? What does that mean? And the answers are, are not always so easy, but those are the questions to ask. Those are the right questions to ask. People think about their work in different ways. People within the same profession think of their work in different ways, which is why I always end this discussion with this age-old anecdote about three workers who were breaking up rocks. And they were asked to describe what it was that they were doing. And the first one said, I'm making little ones out of big ones. And the second one said, I'm making a living. And the third one said, I'm building a cathedral. That's the question I want to leave you with. What cathedral are you building? What cathedral are you building? If you are able to articulate a response to that, that helps you identify how your day-to-day -day experience at work connects with God's broader story, then you are probably living your calling. Thank you. Good afternoon, I'm Rick Chur from the Advancement Division here at Calvin, and we've got about uh, 15 minutes left for questions, so um, I will start with one that was uh, <clears throat> emailed into us, excuse me. Um, how do hobbies, leisure time, and Sabbath fit into one's calling? It's a great question. Um, you know, I've, I'm a vocational psychologist, so I generally apply this concept to our experience at work. Uh, but people have multiple life roles, and I think a sense of calling is something that's relevant for more than just work. And so things like hobbies, um, especially for people who are in highly constrained work environments um, or who lack access to opportunity that a lot of us are privileged to enjoy, sometimes something like a hobby or an engagement um, within a network of relationships, for example, can help to compensate uh, for frustrations that are experienced at work. Um, you know, we often talk about striving for balance, and of course there's a reason that God laid out in Genesis um, the notion of resting one day a week. There's a lot of evidence that overwork leads to burnout and things like that. Um, it is interesting, there is a vulnerability. There's some recent research on the dark side of calling the idea that approaching work in this way can leave people vulnerable to problems yeah. like workaholism, for example, because if the work is so significant and so important, it's hard to say no. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that 
preserving time for rest, uh, let alone the fact that it's one of the Ten Commandments, um, is something that, that uh, is wise to do. This question was emailed from a student wondering, what's your advice to those who are following what they believe to be their calling, but have lost their passion for their work? <laughs> well, you know, um, we make decisions based on imperfect and limited information. And what may seem like a calling at one point in time, as we get deeper into it, we may learn some things about it that fail to align with our expectations. And so if that's the case, um, you know, the, a good course of action would be to explore, um, well, to explore alternatives, uh, but to pull things back and say, what was it that made me passionate about this to begin with? And what is it about my experience now where the passion I once had no longer aligns with it? Uh, it's possible that uh, a shift in course, a change in direction that honors that original sense of passion is something that will move a, a person closer to experiencing that again. Question from someone in the audience here. How do you feel about personality tests such as uh, StrengthsQuest, Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, etc.? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a really good question and, um, you know, I've spent a lot of my career neck deep in personality assessment. Um, it's a hard question to answer using a blanket statement because the, my first reaction would be, well, which personality tests? That question listed a few. A couple of those mm -hmm. are pretty good. A couple of those are not so good. Uh, and Do you care to comment <laughs> on which ones? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't have to name names in this context, <laughs> but uh, I will say, you know, a personality test, when you're evaluating any psychological test, you have to look at what the evidence is that the test is meeting the claims that the test developer is making for it, right? And so there are ways to do that. We look at reliability and validity, and there are a lot of analyses that we can run that establish evidence that a test is measuring what we claim it's measuring or not. Some of the ones that you mentioned um, don't have a lot of evidence supporting validity for the ways that they're applied. One of them doesn't have hardly any evidence of validity, even though it's increasingly popular, which if you're a psychologist makes our head hurt a little bit. Um, but I think personality assessment is a very important tool, but you have to make sure that the information that you're using is good information. Speaking of tools, this question was emailed uh, from an audience member here, wondering about the tool you created, Jobsology. Mm -hmm. um, how soon is too soon to take the Jobsology? Um, test. You could take it uh, as soon as you get home. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I think they're wondering more about <laughs> I know, as a function age. of age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, the things that we've brought into that assessment system are things that have um, evidence of stability, which is important because if you want to use assessment information to make decisions that project into the future, you want to make sure that you're measuring things that don't change a lot over time. Now, what we've learned through lots of research is that things like vocational interests and work-related values, those do tend to fluctuate um, through adolescence, and then on average, they start to stabilize around early adulthood. So with adolescence, I say, look, live, live an active life. Um, you could take a, uh, an interest assessment and then use that to kind of explore further. 
but I always get a little bit concerned that people make, um, they, they foreclose, they make a decision and then start to stick to it while they're still developing their interests further. So uh, we usually say, you know, around 17 uh, is probably a good starting point for taking uh, the jobsology and, or other similar assessment, assessments like that, but just be a little bit tentative in terms of how you apply that information uh, until early adulthood when things start to stabilize. So college students is a perfect time, given what we've learned about these things, to, to take the assessment and use the information. This question came in from Twitter. So how do we non-psychologists assess fit? Well, um, you know, psychologists are trying to get better at providing tools that are easy for anyone to apply uh, in, in the work environment, but ideas of fit are kind of intuitive. I mean, people, if you ask around or if you think about your own experience, um, you kind of have a sense, probably, if the environment that you're in is a good fit for you or not. What I ask people to do is to move beyond just saying this doesn't fit or it does and say, well, try to be specific. In what ways does it fit? In what ways doesn't it? Um, and there's a lot of analogies to use there, like, for example, the fish that swims with the current usually is a happier fish than the, the fish that's swimming against the current. Um, or similarly, we, we say things like birds of a feather flock together. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that when we enter into environments, when we're around people who are like-minded, we tend to be really happy. So if you're a non-psychologist, um, Think about how you feel internally, what emotions you experience about your work environment or any environment, but then try to articulate why do you feel the way you feel? What exactly is it that's influencing those feelings? And people are able to kind of sort it out that way. This person's wondering, how do you approach the motivation or distraction of money when discerning your calling? It's a big challenge, uh, obviously. Um, you know, you one function of work is to earn a living and we have to provide for ourselves and our families and that kind of a thing. I think, um, you know, it's interesting, we've surveyed a lot of companies and the one thing that employees are always unhappy about is their level of pay. It's universal everywhere. Uh, everybody wants 10% more than whatever it is they're making. Um, so I think it's just acknowledging uh, that um, external motivators like money um, they're important, but they're important not to be the driver. Um, it's important to make sure that they don't disrupt the other elements of the decisions you make about your career, right? So, I mean, you can find a lot of people who have left one job that they really kind of liked for another one that paid more, and then after about six months, they realized they made a huge mistake. Uh, so these kinds of things, this is why these decisions are best made not in a vacuum, but consulting with people who are around us who can ask us hard questions to test our, our motives. This person says, first, uh, thanks for the fabulous message today, and talks about, or wondering if you can talk about calling as it relates to later life work, encore careers mm -hmm. or volunteerism. Yeah, well, you know, people are living longer, they're um, staying healthier longer, and so there's a recognition now that um, there's a lot of life to live after retirement. A lot of organizations provide retirement services that are focused on finances, but don't address the psychological adjustment. And um, active engagement in the world, whether it's through paid employment or through volunteer activities, 
Seems like the people who enjoy uh, and have the most satisfying retirements are people who are able to do that. Whether it's, I mean, the, the beauty of it is if you have planned well, then you have a lot of flexibility and freedom to do things, not because uh, you need to, to bring in money to, um, to live, uh, but you can do things whether they pay or not. Uh, it's the same principle, though. You find opportunities where you can express your gifts in ways that make the world better. And whether that's through an encore career, opportunity to try something new, uh, or continue what you've been doing but in a different way, or through volunteer activities, or volunteer activities, the more you do that, the happier you'll likely be and, and uh, the more meaning you'll probably experience. How does starting a family come into play when searching for a calling? Well, it's easy when we're talking about calling to be really pie-in-the-sky idealistic about it, right? But we have to acknowledge that we live in not the ideal world, but the real world. And so we think about all the diverse roles that we play in life, and we think what, you know, a lot of things, of course, aren't within our control, but to the extent that we can make decisions and plan around these things, it enters into the equation. Um, you know, I, give, I have a friend who's an attorney who I give a hard time because he was at one of these law firms where he just worked himself to the bone because in order to get partner, you had to kind of sell your soul there and give up the rest of your life. Frankly, sometimes pre-tenured faculty members at universities feel that way. <laughs> um, but part of it is uh, choosing a career path and also finding an employer who understands that there's more to life than work and that we have multiple callings that we want to balance, and in order to do that well, we have to be in an environment where that, um, you know, you can be successful without having to make those kinds of hard sacrifices. An email from a student wondering, what advice do you have for a college senior who may not want to use his particular degree for his career? <laughs> you know, well, well fortunately, if this is coming from a Calvin student, you know, this is one of the, the benefits of a liberal arts education where you have this kind of broad understanding of things. And, and if, if, as educators, we're doing our job the right way, then students are learning meta skills, you know, things that transcend one particular area, but that can be transferred and applied within a broad range of contexts. So uh, if you can learn if I'm advising that student, I, can, I would say if you can learn to talk about what you've learned and the skills that you've developed in a way that might apply outside of just this one area, uh, then you may be successful at finding employment that allows you to do those things, even if it's not directly linked to whatever your major is. Do you think everyone has a calling? What if all of my decisions leave me feeling disappointed and unfulfilled? Well, those are kind of two questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would separate those out. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like everyone has a calling. I believe that. I think everyone has gifts. That, and again, when I say gifts, I don't mean giftedness. I mean um, individual differences. People are unique. And I think the ways that people are unique have implications for the types of ways to engage in the world where they... Um, you know, can express those to make some kind of meaningful difference. I don't think that's just a privileged position that some people have and other people, well, you're out of luck. I think everybody has that. The separate issue is someone who, who makes 
decisions that end in disappointment time and, and time again, um, that's, a, that's a big, <laughs> there are probably layers um, uh, to that question and that experience, but I would probably look at things like, well, what are the decisions that have been made that have ended in disappointment? What do you mean by disappointment? How do you define success? What does success look like? What are your expectations? You know, these kinds of things. I mean, nothing is easy. I mean, it, it, a lot of people um, have disappointments. You know, um, through Jobsology, I spend some of my time in this startup incubator with all of these entrepreneurs. And you should hear some of the, the war stories uh, about failures. It's almost like a badge, mm -hmm. of, a badge of honor. And some people counter those stories of failures with one or two really wild successes. And other people are still looking for that first success. Um, so, you know, that's just, I think, part of life. The question is, all the decisions that we make and when we look back on the consequences of those decisions, what can we learn from those that we can take with us that will help us make different decisions um, or decisions that are informed by that stuff but that might go in a different direction and then maybe have a different outcome. All right, thank you. And one final question, this person's wondering, do people ever tell you that you look like Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch? <laughs> I, I think it's the beard. <laughs> I have always been interested in architecture though. Oh, so well there you fits. go. Yeah. So. Yeah. Brian will be available in the lobby.